right, good evening. Thanks for coming out on a Friday night. You obviously have no lives, um, but we're really glad that you did. Um, and we're really excited. My name is Barry Taylor, um, and I, I teach in the Brem Center. And this is an event put on by the Brem Center and the, the Doctoral Ministry Program. Is that funny? <laughs> anyway, um, <laughs> all right. So we're um, here's the deal for for uh, the night. We have Pete Rollins with us. Um, he's going to talk for a while. Then you can ask some questions, and then we'll see where it goes. So um, I won't say too much other than Pete's a, a, a mate. He's from Belfast. I, I think he's one of the more important contemporary theologians around today. And I think he's one of the few people who's actually uh, pushing at something new. And if there was ever a time to discover some new things, it would be now. Uh, with that said, Pete Rollins. It's always good you clap at the start because nobody ever claps at the end. <laughs> um, yeah. Uh, yeah, it's great that so many people uh, came tonight. Appreciate it. Uh, I hope that some of you are here to kind of wrestle with this stuff and push back. Uh, you know, and, and, and I want this to, in some respects, uh, challenge you because the stuff challenges me. Uh, I offend myself. People sometimes say to me, you offend me. And I go, I offend me. And, <laughs> and the difference is you only get to listen to me for an hour and then you can go away. I have to listen to this rubbish all the time. You know? <laughs> I'm there most of the time that I'm there. You know, I, I wake up and I'm there and, and I have to listen to this rubbish. So count yourselves lucky if you don't like what I'm saying. You can leave after this. I'm stuck with me. Uh, but push back. I'm Irish. The Irish aren't lovers, we're fighters. So I, 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 like, I like a bit of a fight. That's why we're God's chosen people. The Jewish and the Irish, you know, because um, Israel means to fight with God, to wrestle and to, to overcome. So I want you to fight with this. But, but more than that, I'm actually wanting to invite you to a type of revival meeting. This is, I am preaching for salvation tonight. I want to see hands in the air at the end. I want to see tears. Barry's going to play just as I am. <laughs> yeah, got the, got the, I don't know where the keyboard is, but he'll, he'll bring it in later. Um, we're going to have a mime, you know. Someone, it's going to be beautiful. Because this is, this is, I am preaching for conversions, really. And, uh, but, but what I have to ask you to do in order to get the most out of this is to tr imagine that you have passed through a veil of ignorance, what John Rawls calls in ethical theory a veil of ignorance where you kind of forget everything you know about Christianity, everything you've learned in Sunday school and university and seminary. In a sense, you performatively um, enact a form of forgetfulness. You know, Barry's done it already, years ago. Very similar, yeah. So just kind of, because I, I want to give you the, the bad news and I want to give you the good news of the gospel tonight. I'm going to give you it all, but in order to kind of maybe get what I'm saying, um, it, might be, it might be beneficial for you just to try and forget everything as if you've just come in here like a blank slate. Of course, it's not possible to do that, but as much as possible, enact that performatively. Okay, so where do I want to start? I want to start with the idea of creatio ex nihilo, this, this theological notion of creation out of nothing, which has kind of got this medieval uh, scholastic roots. People were arguing that God created everything from nothing. And it's a fascinating phrase. And I want to take it out of its scholastic setting. And I want to look at what it might mean. 
uh, to create something from nothing, because at first it sounds absurd. The idea of something coming from nothing, of, of, of nothingness itself generating something. But I want to argue that actually this is a fundamental experience of our humanity. And it's not as absurd as it seems at first. I guess one way of getting at what creatio ex nihilo means is there's a story about a man and a wife. It's late at night. The man's upstairs watching TV and dozing on bed. And the woman's downstairs having a shower. Now, there's a knock on the door. And the woman knows husband's all the way upstairs, probably didn't hear the door. So she puts a towel around her. She goes out of the shower. She goes to the front door. And there's the next door neighbor, Joe. And Joe's always had a wee thing for her, right? Always kind of liked her. And he, he, on the spur of the moment, he thinks to himself, I'm going to offer an indecent proposal here. And he says, um, tell you what, between us, if you just take your towel off and give me a little twirl, right, I'll give you $400. No questions asked. And so she thinks about it for a minute. She goes, are you serious? Absolutely. So she thinks, OK. She drops her towel. She gives him a little twirl. And he takes out $400, gives her $400, and goes away happy. So she goes into the house and puts the money into the bread bin and goes upstairs. And her husband says, oh, was that the front door? And she goes, yeah, yeah. Oh, who was it? Oh, it was the next door neighbor, Joe. And he goes, oh, very good. He says, um, did he give you that $400 he owes me? <laughs> now, now, that's, that's the theological concept of creation out of nothing, uh, creation ex nihilo, because Joe had nothing. But he made it look like something, and then generated a result, seeing the naked woman. So this, this idea of nothingness, do you, where you can create something out of nothing, is not as absurd as it sounds. And you know, it's speculative money markets are a form of making nothing look like something, and then you know, making a lot of money, or losing a lot of money as a result. Um, th this kind of can help us get to the heart. Oh, and by the way, this is, a, this, this is part of uh, how radical movements begin. I mean, people often say that the most radical thing you can do is, is fulfill your dreams. But actually, your dreams are idealized versions of your present value systems. So, you know, uh, if you want a $10 million or $100 million, that's your dream, but that dream simply reflects your current value system. Um, and, you know, fairy tales are the kind of uh, the values of a society put into mythological form, poor people becoming wealthy, powerless people becoming powerful, single people getting married. Uh, and this is myth these are ways of passing on society's values onto the next generation. And in different cultures, it's different. Powerful people becoming powerless, wealthy people renouncing their wealth, people in relationships going single. You know, it, it depends. So the, the radical move often is not to fulfill your dreams, but to put yourself in a place where you can dream new ones. And that's very important because, in a sense, when I started the collective that I'm part of, ICON, I didn't have a clue what I was doing. So my vi I had no vision, but I made it look like something. I kind of pretended like I knew what I was doing. And then people kind of gathered around it and then put content. Nature pours a vacuum, you know, so they put content into it. And then when people started asking me to justify what we were doing, I had to make up theology and philosophy to justify it. So I started, and then whenever it sounded quite good, so then I kind of had to write it down, and then I started writing. But, um, but ultimately, <laughs> ultimately, the nothingness, the lack of vision, but I made it look like something, created something which then became uh, more than, uh, you know, than the nothingness. So, uh, this can help us understand a fundamental experience we have when we're born. And in a sense, there are two births for the child. 
The first is, of course, the biological birth. But there is a second birth, and it is the birth of subjectivity that happens during the mirror phase. And that happens, you know, I think it's around six, nine months or something in, into the child's development. And that's the point when the child begins to identify themselves as a self. Before that, they are like a formless kind of uh, body of sensations. But there is a certain point when the infant begins to identify as a person and see itself in the mirror and kind of identify itself as an individual. And this is a very fundamental experience, of course, for human beings. There's a couple of things we could say about it. I'm actually going to not talk about one area at all, which is very important to the Christology I'm developing, but that will be for another time. But um, the one that I'm going to concentrate on today is that the moment that we begin to get a sense of self, a sense of I, there is immediately a sense of non-self, of thou. As soon as there's a sense of an inner world, there is a feeling of an outer world. As soon as there is a sense of, of inside, there is outside. And so what happens is a, an infant experiences a really fundamental sense of loss. You know, before, before this coming into selfhood, there was no I and thou, there was no separation, there just was kind of like a body of sensations, a kind of our prehistory, right? And then as we birth into selfhood, we experience this sense of, of separation. And you see it in a child who is being passed around people, and the child's very happy to be passed around. And then at a certain point, they start to cling, cling to their mother usually, you know? They start to not feel comfortable being passed around. And because in a sense, what happens is the child experiences a sense of, a sense of loss, longing, and nothingness in its being. And then, of course, the next level is they identify that loss with something concrete. As soon as you experience loss, you postulate something that has been lost. That's very natural. If I say I've lost my mind, it means I used to be seen. If I say I lost my computer, it means I used to have a computer. So if we feel a sense of loss, we postulate something that we've lost, something that would you know, kind of make us whole again, something that makes, it's experiences a gap that would make us whole. But the trick is, of course, the child hasn't lost anything. Because before the child has selfhood, there was nothing to lose, nothing for the self to lose, because it's in the very birth of the self that they experience an original loss, a separation, something, a gap. And then the child then, of course, by definition, begins to uh, postulate that thing that's lost, and it's usually the primary caregiver. So in this example, let's say the mother, and they want to reconnect with the mother. And what happens is it's called the weaning process, where the mother, in a sense, has to keep kind of putting the child down and, and getting the child to, to play with toys and realize that the mother has other interests and other things to do. So this is the first time the child experiences the truth of Oscar Wilde saying, there's only one thing worse than not getting what you want, and it's getting what you want, right? Now, because here's the thing. The child, there's two, there's two possibilities for the child. Either the mother says, listen, we can't be one, you know, I'm not your lost object, you know, I'm your mother, but, but you've got to find other interests, you've got to go off and play with other things and other kids. Uh, and then the child's got two options. They either accept that, but they accept it, but of course still they're thinking about their mother, you know, but they accept it and they renounce that they can have their mother. Or they, they refuse to renounce it, and they have temper tantrums and they're always trying creative ways to try and get their mother's attention. 
But the other option is that the mother says, okay, uh, I will be your sole object of desire. This happens in Ireland a lot, actually. <laughs> Irish mothers. Um, Jesus was Irish, you know, he, he stayed with his family till 30 or whatever. His mother thought he was God. And things like that. Um, so, <laughs> so, the, the, so, so the child um, kind of, uh, the mother says, ah, you know, I, I hate my job. I'm, I don't like my partner. You know, it is, it's me and you all the way. That's even worse. The child gets what they want and they're suffocated. The mother's desire is suffocating. They can't individuate, they can't kind of go off and, 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 and move forward in their lives. So actually getting what they think they want is, 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 is a horrific thing and it's quite a damaging thing. Now, in a sense, this loss, this nothingness, it, it follows us into our adulthood. We change what it is we think will satisfy us. No longer is it her mother, or not necessarily directly, but it might be fame, it might be money, it might be that car, that partner, uh, that job. What we often do is we start to postulate something that would fill this gap, this sense of loss we have, this sense of separation. And so we have this sense of loss, and we postulate something that will, will satisfy it. So let's take an example of three brothers who get a small inheritance, and they each want $10 million. That's their dream. And the first brother puts his money into um, some businesses that fail. And then he falls in love with someone, he gets married, he has kids, he has to get a job in order to kind of pay the bills, right? Um, the second brother, similar thing, his, his, his ventures fail, but he doesn't give up. He doesn't, you know, there's people he likes, but he just uses them as means to an end. He doesn't get married, he just pursues, 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 and never gets there. Um, and the third brother, the third brother is successful, invests some money, makes more money, and eventually gets to the, the goal of $10 million. Now, in each of those examples, there's a certain form of pleasure. So for the first brother, we know they get the sense of you know, a relationship, um, family, all these things that can, that can lead to great pleasure. But, but even in the renunciation of the dream, it still affects them. Whenever he's having a fight with his wife or whenever he's in a, the job, he hates it, He's thinking, I wish I hadn't given up on that dream. Or if he wanted to be a musician, I wish I hadn't given up. Look, I, I accepted this. This is my lot. Oh, if, if only I'd kept, if only I kept going, then I would be happy. And so there's this pain, this sense of loss, the sense of he never got that thing which, which would really satisfy him. The second brother, the second brother has the pleasure of being single-minded and going for his goal. And there's a certain pleasure in that. But he's always failing, never getting that ill health and uh, you know, relationships that fail, using people as a means to an end. So it's quite a dark and painful type of existence. And the third brother, the third brother gets a 10 million. And there's a certain pleasure in that. He's able to buy the house he wants, go on the holidays he wants, all of that. And yet, is that it? I got the 10 million and I'm not really that much happier. And then he thinks, well, maybe it's 100 million that I need. And starts postulating something else. Um, and it's, it's the roadrunner thing, I'm not going to talk about it too much, but the roadrunner is this example. We're all in the same situation. The roadrunner was be chasing that bird for 20 years. It's just obsessed with chasing the bird, right? <laughs> and, and, and you know, I watched this as a kid and I was like, well, you know, this is crazy. What would happen if he ever caught the bird? And this is on TV, actually. Or, uh, I think the Family Guy did a little, they did a little skit on it. And, and roadrunner catches the bird. He puts a rock up here and eventually it falls, a bit, like the rope breaks as always, but this time it works. And then it cuts to that night and he's sitting there eating the bird with one of his friends and he's like, oh, 
when you've really worked for your food, like when you've really worked for it, it just tastes that much better. And his friend's going, yeah, yeah. He says, what are you going to do now? He says, well, I, I don't know. I mean, I've never trained for anything else. I'm sure something will come up. And then it cuts to him drinking and watching, like, daytime TV. Um, <laughs> and then it cuts to him. He's working in Wendy's, and he's cracking up. And then he tries to kill himself with one of his catapults, you know? Um, it's like, it's devastating. I mean, he gets the bird, and it's awful. Um, and, you know, but, so he's got three options. And the three options are, you know, he, he renounces the bird, I'll never catch that bird, and he just goes off and does something else. But he's always thinking, what if I caught that roadrunner? Oh, what if I caught that roadrunner? Or he, um, he continues to chase the roadrunner, never catches him. And then that's really depressing as well. He's always Or the third is he gets the roadrunner and then realizes 20 years of my life trying to chase this one bird, was it really worth it? Um, <laughs> And so, and, and the thing about Roadrunner is it, it's a prototype of, it's a prototype zombie film. It's like zombie film for children. Um, you know, zombies are, are these creatures that, you know, all they want is, you know, initially brains, I would check about it, brains, and they would say brains, brains, not flesh, you know. They're, they're this obsessed kind of, this obsession, death, what Freud called death drive. The thing is about zombies is, they, the, the trick is, a zombie is a human being stripped of everything but the drive. And that's what waking life is a good example of this. In waking life, the zombies are us. We are the zombies, but they only, we only turn into zombies when we die. So we're all already zombies. We're all, all already infected. But when you die, you will rise up as undead, and you'll go after flesh. Um, and that's, I think that's very insightful, um, that we are the zombies. There is something within us, this sense of gap, that drives us to, to something that will fulfill it. And, and this is one of the critiques you can make of, of like, you know, something like Ayn Rand or like capitalism is, you know, people think, well, you know, say ca capitalism is just the way things are. It is just our, our selfish nature. Take out the morality. It's just, you know, people pursue their own pleasure. They pursue their own good. So, so in a sense, capitalism is not an ideology, whether it's a right ideology or a wrong ideology. It's just not an ideology. It's simply a reflection of the true, of the real. Now, but here's the thing. If you meet really successful capitalists, loads of them are, not, are very selfless. They are pursuing wealth at the detriment of their own pleasure. Their relationships are falling apart. Their health is deteriorating. If they were selfish, they would stop. If they would, you know, they would, and they kind of enjoy it. But instead, what happens is they work themselves to death, and then it's their kids go out and spend all their money. They spend it on drugs. They spend it on women, and they squander the rest. That's my best joke, by the way. You know, that's, that's my best material. Squander the rest. Is this thing on? <laughs> um, and so it's the kids who kind of, who, who do it. And it's, 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 the, it's the guy, say, who, who worked himself to death to do it. Um, the, the perfect utilitarians, the perfect utilitarians are animals. Not humans, animals. Animals are very utilitarian. They go for their pleasure and they try to avoid pain. They're the ones who read Bentham and Mill and put it into action, right? And Jacques Lacan said, you know, he, he saw this. There was an experiment you can do where you put a mouse in a, in a cage and you put some glass here and you put really nice food, like really nice Swiss cheese or something like that. And, and then you have the kind of rubbish food here, which, which the mouse can get. So of course, what does the mouse do? Well, the mouse tries to get the really good food. And then once the mouse realizes that it can't get the really food, like a good food, like a utilitarian, perfect, you know, red, red J.S. Mill, and well, okay, it just goes, okay, I'll have to go for the rubbish food, right? 
Then they found that if they mucked around with the mouse's brain, they could get the mouse to just continue to bounce against the glass until it died, just wanting to get the good food. So they humanized the mice. They made a human. Um, because that's, that's what Freud called the death drive. This drive that actually goes beyond the pleasure principle it go, and beyond the reality principle. This drive that, that goes beyond actually what is healthy and what is good for us. This something that, that drives us. And by the way, we're all too educated to really believe that, we, to believe that, to think that we have something that we really want, right? But that doesn't mean that it doesn't operate. Uh, often the best way to find out what, what, your, what your object of desire is, is to look at what you critique. Because often what we critique is, is uh, jealousy masked as moral critique. Look at that person with all that money, they're an idiot. Look at that car, that's ridiculous, you know, they're driving that. In other words, oh, I'd really like that. Um, but, I, but, you know, I couldn't have it. So, so often what you have to do is look at your... Now, not all critique, of course, is jealousy, but Nietzsche was very, very clear in going a lot of critique, a lot of so-called moral critique is just jealousy masked in, in the nice guys because I've got a vested interest in thinking I'm a nice person, so I have to try to convince myself that, 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 that I'm actually giving a moral critique. Or, or just look at your flesh. You know, you know if you look at um, uh, primary school kids and the little boys pulling the little girl's hair, right? and pushing her all the time, pushing her. The only person who, who thinks that this little boy doesn't fancy the little girl is the little boy, right? That's the only person who thinks that they don't fancy the little girl. Everybody else knows it. I don't fancy her pushing her and pulling her hair. You know? um, you know, and because so we disavow often the, our idol. And you see this in Hollywood films. Hollywood films operate around this, and they call it the MacGuffin. So in the Hollywood films, a MacGuffin is the object that gets all of the action going. It's the object that all of the people, the antagonists and protagonists, what, they'll do anything to get. It might be $100 million, it might be a woman, a man, revenge. It's whatever object that gets all of the action going. And it's called a MacGuffin because it's actually irrelevant what it is. You just need something. And, and, and what's fascinating is Mission Impossible 3 has a fascinating MacGuffin. Because the, the, the thing that gets all of the action going is called the rabbit's foot, right? We never find out what it is. The bad guys want it. They really, really want it. The good guys, the IMF guys, they really want it. Everybody's fighting for this thing, this rabbit's foot. And it's never even mentioned. The director's just going like, I don't even need to, I don't even need to call it anything. Because all it is is a placeholder. It's a nothingness. It takes as a nothingness that looks like something, that generates itself into something, that gets all of the action going, that everyone will do anything for. In fact, one of the IMF technicians at one point says, my supervisor would say to me, if ever you come across something like the rabbit's foot, he says, you would call it the anti-god. Which is kind of, again, the director just playfully going, the anti-god. You know, if God is everything and the creator of everything, then this is anti-god, this is nothingness itself. There's a nothingness at the very heart of Mission Impossible which generates the action. Now, the truth is, they do hint at it being a biochemical agent, right? Um, and I was hoping, when I was watching it, I was going, that actually, well, and this would have been great, I think, if they'd done it, but that actually, the, what if the bad guys had really wanted the rabbit's foot because they thought that the IMF team really wanted it? And so the IMF team find out that the bad guys, the arms dealers, really want the rabbit's foot, so they really try and want to get it. So in other words, the whole thing is a misunderstanding. The rabbit's <laughs> foot is nothing as itself, and it generates the action, which also would connect with, obviously, obviously mimetic desire and, and how that functions. They didn't go that way, but... Um, 
And, and this is why, you know, Austin Powers, there's a great scene where, <laughs> and this is great, this is the perfect expression of, 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 the, of, the, of the impotence of, and by the way, I'm going to use the word idle soon, so I'm going to start using theological categories, but uh, is this object that we believe will satisfy us, make us whole, make us complete, make us one, fulfill the void in our being, right? This, this thing, in, in, in Austin Powers, there's a scene where there are, there are all of the bad guys, there's about, there's about 10 of them, right? And the scene's just on all 10. And they think they've got $100 billion. And Dr. Evil is sitting there going, this time in 24 hours, we shall have $100 billion. And then they all start laughing. Whoa, like big belly laughs. Like really, like excess pleasures, resons. This is like, this is, they've got the idol. They've got everything they ever wanted to work for. And they're laughing. Whoa. Now, any normal film at that point would cut, right? Of course, that's the thing. The bad guy who has these resons, the, the, the evidence, then you cut to some other scene leaving them with the pleasure. But no, this doesn't cut. It keeps on them. And so they're laughing, and they're laughing so hard. And then, of course, the laughter starts to dwindle a little bit. And then they're kind of like, they're all sitting there like just laughing in this room. Like, <laughs> and then they're kind of like, oh, and they're starting to kind of cough. <clears throat> and then they're kind of looking at each other like really embarrassed. And then, they're, and then they all just kind of walk off. Right? That is the truth of the MacGuffin, is that like, of Hollywood films end at the point that they get the MacGuffin, the, whenever the man gets the woman, they don't end six months later when they're arguing about who's going to pick up the kids, right? Because they, 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 don't, they don't let you see that, that actually this object of desire that gets the whole movie operating is actually impotent. And, and actually, if you got it, it's probably just as bad as you didn't. By the way, that's why the truth of the Roadrunner, and they never tell you this, but if you watch it as obsessively as I did, you'll notice, right? There's, there's a glaring hint of what the truth is. And it's that, right, Roadrunner, or sorry, Wiley Coyote buys all this stuff from Acme, okay? Always Acme. And it's always rubbish stuff, right? It's like it's paint that he can't go through, but the Roadrunner can go through, and it's. It's like, you know, uh, rubber bands that bounce back at him, and it's catapults to put you into the ground, right? It's all really dodgy equipment. And, and there's no way, if Acme, uh, there's no way Acme could continue in business and, and sell that kind of shoddy stuff. There's no way it could, it could exist for 20 years. There's just no way, you know, it would have gone out of business years ago, right? So, th there's only one possible answer, which is he's sabotaging his own stuff, right? He's like, it's like Fight Club, he's got two personalities, and while he's sleeping, it's the only explanation. While he's sleeping, he's getting up and he's playing with the catapult. He's fixing the rope so it'll break. And, and of course, that's what we all do. Whenever the person says, this time next year, I'm leaving my job, right? We all know that means at 65, they'll get their retirement check, right? That's the, it's, that's the very thing they need to tell themselves in order to stay. We, 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 we fantasize, I'm going to leave this person. I'm going to get a new job. No, you've got to watch out for the people who don't say anything. They're the ones who are going to leave. Right? But what, what we do is we, we pretend to ourselves that we're going to do something, and that makes it more bearable to exist in the horrible situation we're currently in. So we fantasize an alternative that we're going to enact, and that's the very thing that prevents us from enacting the alternative. Right? Um, collateral is a very good example of that. Um, but uh, you, know, you know, with the taxi driver, he's driving an assassin around, and at one point the assassin, you know, because this guy's always judging the assassin for being immoral, and I think he has enough of it. And, and the taxi driver wants to set up this high-class limousine service, right? It's a high-class, and he's got all the cars, and he's, he's, he's dreaming about it. He's even told his mum that he's already running this high-class limo service. And then eventually, the assassin goes, hold on a second, hold on. You know, okay, how much money you got put away? 
Well, it's none of your business. Come on, how much money? So oh, I'm, not, no, I'm not telling you. Oh, yeah, he says, I'll tell you the truth. He says, you're dreaming. You're going to wake up in 30 years watching TV with a beer in your hand and your recliner, and you'll never have done anything. And you'll sit there saying, I could never have done it all. It would never have worked anyway. He says, you're moralizing about me killing people. He says, you're killing yourself every day. Um, so it's like a psychoanalytic moment. Um, but uh, so this, this MacGuffin. This thing, and, and one last thing I want to say about, about this, ob this object that we think will satisfy us, is that it's actually not just damaging to us, because we feel it's void, and then we think there's something that will satisfy us, and we grab it. It's actually damaging to our relations with others, because what is the thing we hate most about our enemies? What we hate most about our enemies, generally, is that they have our pleasure. They have what we want. So you know the fundamentalist preacher who's sitting there going, you know, all those gays who are having orgies all the time and all these perverted sex acts and wearing all those crazy clothes and all that leather and they're getting all sweaty. Because, and what are they saying? You know, they're saying, those people here are having all the sexual pleasure that I'm not having, right? You know, it's, a, it's the dress of, you know, it's so passionate. It's so passionate. Just look at there, you know, there's this sex before breakfast and it's all, oh, it's, it's crazy, it's crazy. You know, it's just like, it's just pretty, you know, it's, it's obvious, you know, it's like, you know, there, look at all the fun they're having. I'm sitting here preaching. It's terrible. Um, and, you know, where the, you know, the, oh, the immigrants are taking all our jobs. You know, they're taking what we have. And, of course, what the other thing that people say is, oh, they're, they're lazy and are taking our welfare. You know, the two mutually exclusive claims, like, they have, they have what we want. We have, and it's, it's, it dry, it's agonizing. And that's why, you know, if you break up with someone, I, when I, I uh, an ex-girlfriend in, in Ireland, we broke up. I was imagining her going out every night and having parties and having a real laugh, having this pleasure that I wasn't having. And so happened she was, but that's beside the point. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, anyway, but the point is, I mean, I don't know if she's that happy. She was partying, but, um, but, but it was, well, what we do is we imagine the par our partner, you know, they're having all the fun, they're going out and they're, and look at me, I'm really depressed and sitting in the house and rocking and collecting my urine and bottles, and, and they're, they're, all, they're all going have a, having a ball, you know. Um, and, it's that thing of they, they have, they have the object that I want. And that's why, I mean, Shizak talks about this a lot, and he, he's very good. He, there's, a, there's an old parable, I think, from Romania or something, but about this angel who comes down to this farmer and says, oh, you know, you have been a good and faithful man of God. You know, you have been blessed with a, a gift. What is it? We will give you whatever you want. Oh, and there's more. Whatever we give you, we shall give your neighbor double. And so he looks at the angel and says, take one of my eyes. He would rather have his neighbor blind, rather take out one of his own eyes to rip the jouissance, the pleasure of the other, than actually have something good and get the neighbor having double. There's something in that. Like if you see this at fights at night, um, where someone will, you know, if there's hipsters or something, he, he, I don't know who the anti-hipsters are. I'm not married other hipsters. I'm not sure. Whoever's anti-hipsters, and, the, and, and they'll want to fight. Oh, those hipsters, look at them. They're all the arty, and they're all the, the intellectuals and all of that. And they'll go in and fight them. And the, even though it's a detriment to them, they'll really hurt them, because they're more, their desire is to actually hurt the other even more. It's a very selfless thing to do. That's the thing, immorality is not selfish, immorality is selfless. Zombies are incredibly selfless. They will go to, they will try and get flesh at the expense of their own existence. You know, in the sense of, if they were selfish, if zombies were selfish and self-interested, 
you know, they would, they would kind of calm down a bit and kind of try and set up traps and, no, they'll just go, they'll just go for it, even if you've got a shotgun. You know, it's like, it doesn't matter, they're self, very selfless. Um, this death drive, so, so theologically, what am I saying? Well, I'm a big believer in original sin, right? Because I think this is what the nothingness is called. I love the term original sin, not original blessing. Ugh. Original sin, as in original, like as in there's a separation, this original separation. There's a sense of loss. There's a sense of nothingness at the core of our being, which is original. I.e., it comes first. Instead of having something which you feel you've lost, the loss comes first, and then you postulate something that will fulfill it. Original sin. I.e., blessing comes second. I, the sin's there, and then you postulate a blessing. You postulate something that will fulfill your emptiness. So you have this experience of loss, and what does it generate? It generates the idol. What is the idol? The idol is that object that you think will satisfy you, the object that you worship, the object that you will give yourself to wholly, the zombie kind of thing that's in you that wants that idol, that, that thing, that's the idol. Um, and then sin is anything you do to get to the idol. So it could be drugs and drink, it could be having kids, because if, you know, if you think having a child will satisfy your soul or whatever, if, if you could be getting married, it's any activity that tries to bridge the gap between you and the postulated idol, which in truth is impotent, but we don't experience it as impotent. We experience it as profoundly powerful, the nothingness that generates all our actions. And it's very creative. In the same way that psychoanalysts say that children are very creative precisely because they want to win over their parents, they want to win over and bring back so they ask lots of questions, do puzzles and all that. In theology, you know, this, this thing generated the Tower of Babel. You know, so it's like it, it creates technology. We, this, this drive is actually quite a creative drive. Um, whew, so we're doing okay. Now, that, this, this, the problem for me is, imagine the world is like a great vending machine full of idols, right? The world is saying to us, you can be happy, you can be fulfilled. That we get that all the time, magazines, Hollywood films, everyone is telling us you can be happy and you can be fulfilled. You can have what you want. Just look this way, buy this product, do this thing, and you can be happy. Everyone's telling us that. So the, the world is like this huge vending machine with all of these products. And interestingly, the church seems to be, to me, just offering one more product. God is just one more thing that will satisfy you, make you happy, make you complete, make your life whole. So it's not BMW, it's not Coca-Cola, it's not that house, it's not that girl, it's not that guy, it's Jesus. You know? so, so in other words, Jesus and God are, just, are, are exactly the same as every other thing. This is just a different product. So the church is just a different shop. The worship music are the jingles, and the clergy are the salespeople. Right? Um, and that's why the world is so good at worship music. When I first came to America, um, I was listening to, I tuned into some kind of like, um, you know, channel. I was listening to some Indian kind of rock music, you know, that really, la really lame kind of like rock music. But that's what I wanted. I was listening to it. And, and, um, but as I was singing along and humming along, I realized then suddenly I heard the word Jesus. Oh, it's interesting. Well, it's Jesus. And then I realized this is actually, was just not some pop song. It was actually a, a contemporary Christian worship song. And I, these people weren't singing about a lover or something like that. They were singing about Jesus. I was interested. Why does it sound so similar? And the, well, of course, it's simple. It's because the charts are amazing at worship. They're brilliant at it. It's a multi-billion dollar industry. If worship music is, is in a sense, you know, postulates, and, and, and I think we can define worship music differently, but in the popular sense, if worship music is postulating an object that will satisfy you, make you whole, make you complete, that you give everything to, 
then that most pop music is, is worship music. You know, it just postulates a woman, a man, revenge, money, whatever it is. It postulates something, and, and it, it shows devotion to that and, and whatnot. So the, the world's very, very good at, at worship music. And so um, you see a similar thing in a lot of churches. What I'm going to argue in a minute is the church is the one place we should go to escape worship music. It's the one place in our week where we should go to not hear any worship music, um, to not postulate this idol and, and whatever. But we'll come to that in a second. So the church becomes just this offering exactly the same as everyone else, just a different product. And by the way, we all know, because this is what happens, whenever you buy the product that supposedly makes you happy and it doesn't, well, you've either got to do a couple of things, you either disavow that, you deny it, and uh, you know, it's like, oh, I need to do something else, like I'm not using the product correctly, um, and you, maybe you supplement it with other products and other things. Um, though this car isn't good enough, I'll get the better car, or this, you know, I'll, I'll upgrade to the next iPhone, or whatever, whatever it is, you know, up, up, up. Or, um, so either you're not using it correctly, or you pretend you are happy, right? You just pretend it's, you, the car is satisfying, and you drive around, because you put so much money in it that you can't really deny it. Um, and, and you don't think too much about it. I mean, here's the issue is, um, I, I heard in the news a while back, and people say this, uh, uh, you know, thinking, Thinking uh, makes you depressed. Yeah. Now, yeah. and, and, and you know, there's a lot, of, there's a lot of evidence for that. You know, you see people who think and they're always generally depressed, you know. Um, but, but Kierkegaard would say this. Um, he would say, no, thinking doesn't make you depressed. Thinking tells you that you already are depressed, you just didn't know it, right? Now, and in other words, I and mean, that's what I say to people. I say, are you trying to get me to be really unhappy? No, you already are unhappy, you just don't know it. Yeah. Um, and the, the, we're actually very, very unhappy generally. Um, because life is traumatic. There are two types of trauma. There's the traumas that happen to us, which is tradition, but then there's the trauma that is existence itself. Um, so we, but, but we often, we don't sit long enough to experience it. We keep ourselves busy. The next film, the next is the next that. Pascal says, you know, we can't sit still because we'll encounter our own darkness, and that's terrifying. Some of us even sleep with the radio on, and we just, we just keep, keep ourselves busy, keep ourselves, you know, things around us. Because if we stop, we might find out that we're actually really depressed. This happened to a friend of mine, very outgoing, very, very social. She, she was having all of these physical ailments, couldn't find out what was wrong with her. This happened very recently. She eventually went back to the doctor, said, we can't find anything wrong with you. And after a few questions, he says, well, I think you're depressed. She's like, no, I'm not. Like, no, I think you're depressed. Like, no, I'm not. No, I think you're depressed. No, I'm depressed. Terrible. You know, it's like, um, it's like she didn't even know it until she was confronted with it. Um, in the same way that we often, and it's called repression, where we don't know what we know. You know, we all know that, um, you know, getting chocolate at a local shop, we're supporting, a, you know, cocoa beans being picked on the Ivory Coast by kids who are being abused. We all know that, but we deny the knowledge because we, we don't want to think that we believe in, in child slavery. But of course we do. Of course we do. If we buy the chocolate, we do. But we do want to, that might be awful to admit that. So we, we pretend we don't. Because um, we, we like to think that our beliefs are what we think, rather than our beliefs are our operating system. Like a mobile phone, you know, your beliefs are what you do, um, not what you think you do. You know, what you think is, is designed to stop you from knowing what you believe. And that's the, that's the great thing. That's what Alcoholics Anonymous knows, is that um, alcoholics, I'm not an alcoholic. I could give up drinking any time I want. And, and in Alcoholics Anonymous, the first thing you have to do is say, I'm Peter Rollins and I'm an alcoholic. You have to admit that, in a sense, the story you tell yourself about yourself doesn't fit your material reality. You have to bring your story to your material reality. Um, so what am I saying? Well, where was I? Uh, church, not a product. Okay. 
Okay, so, so what's, that's the problem, right? That's the problem. Oh, yeah, because there, oh, what we do in church is, oh, it didn't work when you came to the front. It didn't work. Well, you know, but, you know, fast a bit more, pray a bit more, do this, do that. So that's one thing, you know, you supplement it. We supplement it with other things. Or we, we get so invested, we pretend we're happy. And we clap and we sing and we pretend we're happy. And, and actually, often whenever people get really annoyed with me, it's funny, I've had this all the time. It's weird how often it happens. Not, it's weird how often people get annoyed at me. <laughs> yeah. I used to think I was my own worst critic, and then I heard what everybody else was saying. <laughs> Turns out I'm not in the top 10. No, um, uh, no hi, uh, there's a few people who have, of course, people get annoyed with me for various reasons or don't like what I say, but, but when someone really reacts against me, really reacts, and then I was sitting down and buy a drink or whatever, and we sit down and actually have a chat, you kind of find that, of course, the reason why they're so angry whenever you calm down and start talking about it, is because actually it's, it's so in them. Because why would you get angry? I mean, if the, you know, the Amish are sitting here, they're not going to get angry with me. They're just going to say, no, you're wrong. You know? If you actually get angry with me, you're kind of, it, it seems like a repression. There's something you know but don't know that you know. Right? Um, uh, and and that, that's a very basic structure in us all. We, things that we know but we don't know that we know, and we have to bring it to the surface. And in saying it, that's, and that's why, by the way, WikiLeaks, you know, that's the radical thing about WikiLeaks, and someone like Shizek would say, is that it's, it doesn't tell us things we don't know. That's not what, I mean, WikiLeaks tells us things we don't know. Of course, there's things we didn't know. But that's not, that's not the crazy stuff. You know what the crazy stuff is? The crazy stuff is the stuff that we know, but we pretended we didn't know. But they're torturing people, but they're killing citizens. We all knew that. But we didn't know that we knew. We had plausible deniability. But then you're confronted with knowledge, and so that causes the problem. Change doesn't happen when you're, usually when you're confronted with what you don't know. Change happens when you're confronted with what you do know, but refuse to know. It's, that's why, you know, if there's a big documentary comes out about, say, cruelty to animals in the dairy industry or something like that, people don't want to watch it. We know what it's going to say. Um, and because we, and it's not that it's going to tell us anything we don't know. We all know that. It's going to tell us what we already know. But once we know it, we can't deny that we know it. And so we either have to admit that we don't care, or we have to change. Because I've got plausible deniability until you show me the documentary. I don't want to see the documentary because I don't want to have to change. But when I see it, no, okay, I either admit that I'm really, really heartless or I try and make a change to my material existence. Um, so we, we often try to avoid the things that we know. And that's why we, you know, we always read people who already agree with us. and We, watch you know, we want to surround ourselves, build up our, our the beliefs that make us happy, and, and we don't want to expose ourselves to the other because it's, it's traumatic. Um, we, we encounter our own monstrosity. Because when we encounter another, we either try to consume them, we try to make them part of our social body, or we try to vomit them out, we try to push them out of our social body, or we engage in some sort of interfaith dialogue. Right? I want to reject all of those. Terrible. You know, interfaith dialogue, we all sit around and agree with each other and have a cup of tea. They're terrible. No, the, the, I think the truly radical move when you encounter the other is that at first you experience them as monstrous and weird and awful, but then you look at yourself through their eyes and you experience yourself as monstrous and, and awful and you experience the provisionality of your own beliefs and the, and the historicity and cultural embeddedness of your own beliefs. So you need the eyes of the other in order to see yourself. So you're transformed through seeing yourself through the eyes of the other. Um, so what is the answer? I've got to keep an eye on the time, my goodness. You're all very, very generous with your patience. Um, got a little bit more time, haven't we? Yep. Okay, I want to get around to the answer. What's Christianity got to do with all this? 
What's called, but for me, Christianity is the rejection of this idle, original sin, sinful activity. Christianity is a form of life which blows that apart. Now, how does that work? Okay, a few things I want to say. First of all, the Christian postulates Christ as the one without sin, right? The one without original sin, which means without the void, therefore without the idol, and therefore without the sinful activity that generates the, 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 the drive for the idol. So, in other words, Christ is at one, at not at war with himself, is at one God as the ground of being, not God as an idol out there, whatever, right? Uh, fully God and fully human. Now, interestingly, fully human, I always find it weird when people think fully human makes, you know, means that Jesus is like us. No way. I mean, to say someone's fully God is to say that there is different, from, far from me as this earth is from the farthest star. To say that someone is fully human is to say they're as far from me as the smallest quark. You know, I'm not human, I'm inhuman, I'm zombie, I'm kind of, there's something inhuman in me that, that, that the death drive. So, in a sense, we're postulating fully human, fully God, and we'll come back to that maybe. But anyway, on the cross, we say this very traditional, very traditional, I'm very conservative, I'm a conservative, you know. So, we, um, we say that, you know, this Christ without sin becomes sin. So, what does that mean? Well, very simply, Christ is the sin, what money is the value. Money has no value, but it represents all value. Now, of course, a note has value if you want to snort cocaine or something. You know, it's got some value, but, but literally knots and ones, knots and ones have no value. Money has no value. It represents all value. Now, a second thing about money is money is the concretization of nothingness itself, of debt. Now, traditionally, people think that, that money came about because, you know, you have a cow and you have 20 chickens. You need, you need 20 chickens, you need a cow, and you do an exchange, right? But anthropologists have not found a society like that. What they have found is something slightly different. You have a cow, you have 20 chickens. You need a cow, you don't need 20 chickens. So you give him the cow and you go, you owe me one, right? And then later on, a month later, you need some chickens and he gives you some chickens. That's the kind of side. And then money comes in to concretize the debt, right? To say, to, to make concrete the nothingness, the, the indebtedness that, that's there. So in a way, Christ, become, you know, Christ comes to debt, the concretization of the nothingness. Um, and that, where's that represented? Of course, in the cry, which is central, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Christ then experiences the gap. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He experiences the gap. And here's the radical move in Christianity from this interpretation. This, the secret is revealed, right? The temple curtain, this massive curtain that separates the holy of holies from us. There were only a priest who go in once a year, whatever, and they had to do all these rituals, and they had a rope tied around them or something, so they could be pulled out of, if they got sucked into the abyss, and you'd come out all burnt up and charred or whatever. And this holy of holies where God dwells. The temple curtain is ripped in two, and the truth is revealed. There is nothing there. My friend Jay Baker says, it's not every sock you ever lost. <laughs> It's not the loose change you put down the back of the sofa. There's nothing there. It's um, no God gas. Nothing. Nothing. What we are separated from is a fiction. It is finished. I want to dwell here for a second before I go on to resurrection. It is finished. So what we experience, and if we participate in this existential thing, if we participate in the crucifixion, if we participate in it, what one finds is, you know, wait, you know those, 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 those diagrams where you have like a human being here and then God here 
on two, two chasms, and then you've got like works and various things here, and then the cross falls down into the middle and go across <laughs> and across, right? Like, um, and you can jump over the top bit. Um, uh, that, that is a beautiful description of what I'm talking about, except the only thing I want to change is instead of God, it's the idol. So we, the, the, we're us, we feel separated from the idol. And then the problem with this is, this is where I think the church, go, the, the theology goes wrong, is that we postulate that the cross is just a better version of all these other things, whereas nothing else can get us to the, uh, to the, to the object that will satisfy us. The cross does, right? So it's kind of like the uber thing. No, I think what's radical about Christianity is, you know the way Paul says, the love fulfills the law, right? It doesn't fulfill the law by being an uber law. It doesn't put its big boy pants on and put a cape on and be, I am the super law, right? No, it's, it's, like, it's like love fulfills the law by existing in a different register, by obliterating. You know, so it's a fulfillment of the law, but not by being an uber law, but by existing on a different mode, a different form, a different register. In the same way, for me, atonement is not the payment of the debt. You, him, ten, you her $10,000, right? And I pay it. I pay the debt. No, no, it's the obliteration of the entire economic system. It's the year of jubilee. It's the forgiveness of the debt. It's not the payment. It's the destruction of the entire thing. This is what the world, this is what we all believe, that we are separated from the idol. We are separated from something that will make us happy, which will make us complete, which will make us fulfilled. This is rubbish. You can't be happy. That's the good news of Christianity. You can't be fulfilled. That's the good news. Life is crap. <laughs> Amen. Like, I want to, I want to, I want to, I want to, uh, as I finish it in, a, in, a, in, a, in an hour or two, you know, soon, um, tell you why that is good news. Right? But I, I won't do it there. But the church is the place you go to find out you can't be happy, you can't be fulfilled. That's all a lie. This whole system is obliterated. Obliterated. It is finished. We experience the loss of it all. Um, and I'll say one more thing. I've, I haven't said this yet to anybody, so I'm going to try and put this in order. I think the way this, we existentially engage in this is that, right, uh, and there's a theological conservative notion which I love, which is, in a sense, we can't get out of this system. We need something to reach in, right? So the way I think this functions is this. By definition, a Christian will make Christ into an idol. By definition, because we're caught in this structure, right? We're caught in it. We're, we're imbibed in it. It's part of our very nature of our being. So when we, if we believe in Christ, Christ becomes the idol. Right? We fall for it. We fall for the, the, we fall for the thing, right? Now, here's the interesting thing. When you do that, so when you, Christian, becomes a Christian, falls for Christ as the idol, this the who will satisfy me. There's a certain point when they begin to, that begins to rupture, fall apart, right? And they begin to think, no, this isn't working. So there's two options that are generally taken. One is they either disavow it, and by the way, I want to write, you know those books when you, when you were young and you go like, you know, Johnny, will he go to the forest and try and save the princess, or will he go into the castle and try and slay the wizard? And then you had to like pick page numbers, right? I kind of want to do one of those books for theology. Um, uh, again, you, know, you, know, you know, Jimmy is in the prayer meeting and suddenly wonders if God is there. Does Jimmy, A, repress the knowledge, continue to pray, Continue, they go, or does it, you know, the, well, so, you know, when one says, <laughs> the two, two options Jimmy has is that, you know, so he can stop believing in Christianity, walk away, a lot of people do that, go, this isn't working, I'm walking away, right? Or Jimmy can go, I'm going to repress that knowledge, I'm going to continue to pray in, I'm going to, you know, and I'm going to, I'm going to disavow what, what seems to be obvious. 
I think both of those moves are wrong, fundamentally wrong. I think that what's the genius in Christianity is that you have to believe in Christianity and allow Christianity to stop believing in itself. Right? So you, you believe in Christ as, as the, the object of satisfaction. And then what happens? Well, Christ stops believing. God stops believing in God. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? God experiences the loss of God. Now, why is it? Why is it wrong for somebody to give up Christianity? In a sense, because they haven't destroyed the structure. They've just said, well, Christ isn't the idol. But then they just replace it with something else, with money or with uh, reading or with whatever. You know, the structure remains in place, but just they go, but Christ isn't, isn't the object. So the structure remains in place. If you continue to accept that Christ is the idol, the structure remains in place. In both those options, the structure, the matrix remains the same. But when Christ kind of loses, when God loses God, the system starts believing in itself. And that's what breaks the system. It's like um, if you have a child, a kid, uh, and the kid's in therapy, and the, the, the therapist asks, you know, do you like daddy? And the kid goes, yes, I like daddy, I love daddy. And then you go, well, does, does Teddy like daddy? No, Teddy doesn't like daddy. <laughs> Teddy hates daddy. I like daddy, but Teddy hates daddy, right? Now, that's, the point is you're not supposed to convince the kid that they should like daddy or, or to ask the kid. You've got to ask the teddy bear. That's the person in therapy. You, there's no point asking the child what they believe. You've got to ask the teddy bear. Why? Because the teddy bear is, in a sense, the verbalization of the child's unconscious, you know, what, what the child really feels. So the child kind of expresses through, and this is what we do in church, and you know, we all say we have doubts, but we all, you know, it's all Jesus, my boyfriend's songs, and all certainty. So we, we believe materially through the enactment of the liturgical structure, which is fundamentalist on our behalf, so we don't need to be fundamentalist. So um, the, the, the point is to convince the teddy bear. That's, that's who needs the therapy, not the child. The teddy bear needs the therapy. And the, the same point is this, is I can stop believing that certain thing is an idol, but it's only when the idol stops believing in itself. So I can think that fashion's ridiculous, as long as the fashion magazines believe it isn't. You know, so as I can mock it while continuing to dress fashionably, right? It's only when the fashion magazines stop believing it. I mean, politically, it's the same thing as lots of people, you know, in totalitarian states don't believe the government or don't believe in it, but they continue to march and turn up at all the right things and clap whenever you have to clap. It's only whenever they think that the government doesn't believe in itself that actually revolution can change. Whenever you start to go, the structure doesn't even believe this emperor's new clothes. The point is pointed out and the, the emperor goes, it's like the, when the emperor realizes and everybody can then laugh and ridicule. But it's not that everyone knows that the emperor's naked. It takes the emperor to know that they're naked for the radical change to happen. And so um, this is the, the genius of, of the prisoner. This is why the prisoner is deeply Christological. Um, the 1960s, series, surrealist series, Patrick McGugan, he's a Christian, he was a Christian. Um, very different from Star Wars universe, very pagan. This is, in fact, Star Wars universe is kind of like a is, a, is a, is a Christian universe with a pagan kind of like a truth, you know, a balance and order and disturbance is wrong, you know, balance and order is right. The Prisoner is the opposite. The Prisoner is a series where this guy, the secret agent, says he's retiring from the secret agent, see, whatever, IMF, whatever he works for. And he puts in his resignation. He goes back to his house to pack. And then there's gas is put into his house. He falls asleep. He wakes up in this village. And everything is perfect. Everything is looked after. You've got beautiful houses. You know, you've got retirement homes. Everything's really nice. Everyone's so friendly. And it's horrible, right? 
It's, it's perfect. It's a perfect sign. Everything is balanced in order. The pagan universe, everything is balanced. Everything is ordered. And he's like freaking out. You don't know who the, it's a prison with no walls. You don't know who the prisoners are. You don't know who the prison guards are. And every episode is him trying to escape. And also the second part of it is everyone's given a number. He is number six, right? And uh, we, ne we don't find out who number one is. Who runs the village? And he's always trying to find out. We find out who number two is. And number two is just as enslaved by the looks of it half the time as everybody else, right? Now, at the very beginning of every episode, there's this great dialogue that happens where he's captured. You see it every episode, he's captured. And then he gets in, he says, what is this? He says, this is the village. Who, you know, who am I? You're number six. And he goes, who is number one? And they just go, you're number six. This is the village, right? Very end, we find out who runs the village. And it's fascinating. It's not, it's not the, you know, the Russians or the, you know, whoever the, you know, corporations or whoever the, the bad guy is in whatever moment, the uh, Vietnamese or whatever. What's fascinating is, we find out who number one is after wanting, desiring to know all the way through. And by the way, I'm going to tell you the answer, but it was in the 1960s. So if you don't know by now, I'm not exactly kind of telling you new knowledge. You know, um, The village is in the present. It's in the present. They think they're in the past. He sees dead people because the guy's dead. <laughs> it's similar to that. I'm going to tell you the answer. The Titanic sinks. Right? Um, uh, um, it's, uh, he, he's number one. And it tells you in every episode, where am I? You're in the village. Who am I? You're number six. Who is number one? You are number six, right? In other words, he is fighting something that feels separate from him, but is actually him. And this is, this is what you see on the cross, in a sense, is, is the, the internal rupture happening of, of that which you know, and because the idol is us. It, the idol, it, we experience it as separate from us, as other than us. And here, like the village, it is experienced as deeply pleasurable, as a thing. It's perfect. It's beautiful. brings balance, brings wholeness, brings order, brings all of that. And yet, simultaneously, it's experienced as profoundly oppressive, like the village. Everything is ordered. Everything is beautiful. Everything is right. And yet, it's experienced as utterly oppressive. Um, and it's us. And we are not rejecting that. We're rejecting an entire structure that is part of our, our ontological reality. And so in Christianity, accepting it or rejecting it are the two wrong moves to make. You accept it and allow it to reject itself. And then when that happens, we understand a different notion of Christ as fully at one, without the original sin, without the separation, without the... The, the, the oppression of that which is created. The church is the place where we are free from the pursuit of our happiness. Politically, we, we fight for the pursuit of our freedom of, for happiness. The church is the place where we are free from the pursuit of our happiness. Um, now, resurrection. Three things about the idol, and I know I really need to stop here, so I'll, I'll just take five minutes. <laughs> for resurrection. Um, you know, um, you know, three things about the idol. The idol exists, and to exist means to stand apart. It's, you know, to, to exist, to stand out. That's what existence means. So you don't exist to me, really, unless I see you stand out. You know, you stand, to exist, to stand out. The, in fact, the, the idol exists for us, even though it's a figment. It's, it exists for us so powerfully that other things don't really exist in the same way. Secondly, the idol is sublime. It's beautiful. And thirdly, it's meaningful. It's what renders, it's, what, it's the meaningful thing that renders everything else meaningless. 
In the resurrection, I think we, we experience the death of God as idol, as product, as that thing that will satisfy us. And we find a different notion of God, where God is love. And the thing about love, three things about love, love does not exist. Love is, but love does not exist. Love calls everything into existence. See, if I'm walking along and I see a thousand people, I don't see any of it. I'm like a cow gazing at cars. But then I see someone I love, and they are pulled out of the undulating sea of others, and I see them. A friend of mine was traveling from Connecticut to New York, and she'd forgotten her purse. She had no ticket. She was really embarrassed, no money. And this big, burly conductor is walking up, going, tickets, please, tickets, please, big guy. And this is America. You guys are pretty tough, you know? Your police are pretty tough. You know, I always feel I'm going to get tased or something. You know? Don't tase me. Bro. Um, I'm sure they're all very nice. I'm not, but it's, there's a nervousness. You know, there's, a, you know, there's like signs saying, you know, this building can only have 453 people in it or something. I go, wow. Anyway, who's counting? And it's, it's really, um, um, you know, as in Ireland, you can't, it's really hard to get arrested in Ireland, you know, we're just all just drunk all the time, you know, so, so this big conductor, and so she's, she's freaking out, she's nervous, and he gets up, tickets please, and she says, I'm really sorry, I forgot my ticket, I don't have a purse, and he, he saw that she was kind of like really embarrassed and a bit upset, and she, he went, don't worry, love, it's okay, and so they sit, he sit, and he sits down, and they chat, and he makes a wee joke, and um, and then, you know, they talk about their families, show pictures and all of this of each other's families. And then he gets up to go and she says, listen, I'm really sorry. And he says, no, stop, stop. He says, it's just nice being seen. It's just nice to be seen. Now, of course, he's seen by thousands of people, but only as an instrument, as a utilitarian function of a system. But in that moment, he felt he existed. He was seen. Love calls things into existence. But it doesn't in itself stand out. It's like the light in this room. You don't see the light. It's the light that enables you to see. And yet, it's only the light that I see, because it's the light bouncing off your, you into my eyes. So I don't sit around with my friends going, oh, the light's so amazing. I, I, it's my friends here are amazing. The light illuminates. Love is like a field mouse in the dark. And as soon as you put a spotlight on it, she scurries away. And you just catch the little end of her tail. Love insists. Jack Caputo says, love does not exist, love insists. And it brings, it calls things into it. Like, like, like the Torah, you know, there's a formless void, things are called out. Secondly, love is not sublime, love is not beautiful, love is not wonderful. Love is what says, look at that person, look at that cause, that is sublime, she is beautiful, he is wonderful, they are amazing. In other words, love in a sense is always pointing us into the midst and finally, love is not meaningful. Love is what renders the world meaningful. In other words, when you love, when, if you don't love and you're eating food, it's just a utilitarian thing you do in order to survive. When, if you love someone and you're eating food, it becomes an act of communion. Suddenly, it is infused with meaning. And so love brings, and so if you believe the world is meaningful, but you don't love, you cannot help but experience the world as meaningless. And if you think the world is meaningless, but you are in love, you cannot help but experience the world as meaningful, right? Love renders meaning into the world. And so this is why I think the truth of the incarnation comes in. And it's the difference between classical science and, and you know, Newtonian science and quantum mechanics. Newtonian science, you have the idea that the mystery, the otherness is outside the system. So the original scientist said, everything in the system can ultimately be explained, but there is one thing that cannot be explained, which is the order of the system itself, a transcendental argument. Um, 
And so you postulate a mystery that cannot be explained within the realm of science, but within the phenomenal, phenomenological world, you know, the phenomenal and the noumenal in Kantian terms, within the phenomenal world, everything can be in principle explained. But with the, with the, with the birth of quantum mechanics, with Heisenberg's uncertainty principle or whatever, is that, is that we find that the mystery actually infuses reality itself. The noumenal, is what Hegel would say, the noumenal is not outside the phenomenal. The noumenal is within the phenomenal. The nothingness, the mystery, actually indwells reality. There is something that, that, that within reality itself that cannot be explained, um, which is, um, you know, like, uh, like the, 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 the cartoon holes in, in, in Roadrunner. You know, they're tiny circles, but they open up to an infinite. They, they open up being into nothingness, into, into this. Like, and that's what your beloved is. That's what love is, you know. This person that's in front of you opens up to an inner world that goes on for infinite proportions. They are the opening into, into otherness and mystery. The other is a mystery, not only to you, but onto themselves as well. Like Hegel said, you know, the, the mysteries of the Egyptians were mysteries to the Egyptians as well. You know, I, if you ask them what, what the pyramids meant, they might go, we don't have an idea. You know, we always think they, that they know we are a mystery unto ourselves. So, um, and with this, I'm going to start drawing to a close. So, there's a sense in which when we say God is love, we're somehow saying that God not, doesn't mean epistemologically that you have to stop believing in God as another, but it's that actually the only privileged access to God is in the act of sensitizing ourselves to one another getting our hands dirty, embracing the world. And this is what I think the message of the church is. It's the place we go to avoid worship music. It's the place where we go to learn that we cannot be happy, we cannot be fulfilled. But in that, we lay that down, we bring to the surface our darkness and our brokenness, we're honest about it, we sensitize ourselves to one another. And in that, in laying down our lives, we find them. In laying down the idea that we can happy, be happy and just trying to live as humans, we actually find a form of happiness. Not maybe the ecstatic happiness promised by the idol, but a form of fulfillment and a form of happiness that is actually intensely beautiful, intensely deep. It's the place you go for the freedom from the pursuit of happiness. It's like we are the zombies and Christ is a human being that came into the world and we bit him to death and inviting him, we got the virus and that virus turned us human, right? That is the truth. And we get bitten and some of us run away and some of us die and some of us are hurt. But as the, that's the way a zombie film should work. Starts that we're all zombies and then this virus enters the world and creates a human and then we all bite it and we are then the world starts to be humanized. And that's the message of Christianity. And so this, this. In the 1930s, musicals were massive. A way to escape our suffering. Big sets, big color. But when we came out, life was the same as always. Contrast that with a singer-songwriter. You've gone through a divorce or a death, and you go to a singer-songwriter. They sing, but they sing in such a way that you hear your suffering in that song. They sing about their brokenness, but in some respects as well, there is a joy in the fact that they are singing, putting liturgical form to their song. And you cry, you weep inside, you somehow, maybe not in tears, real tears, but you feel the work of mourning happening. You feel yourself actually coming in contact with your brokenness, but in a way you can handle, that you may not be able to handle without the ritual of the music. You know, otherwise you would just, you know, you kill yourself. You find in this community this liturgical reflection that reflects your pain back onto yourself. You bring it to the surface, 
You know, Kierkegaard said, what is a poet? A poet is someone who screams in agony, but whose lips are so formed that when they cry out, beautiful music is formed. And when we say to the poet, sing to us again, we are really saying, may new disasters befall you. Um, you know, we, they cry on our behalf. Like, you know, like literally you paid professional mourners to cry in funerals to help in one sense you to access your suffering um, uh, in a way that you can handle. And you come out and there's something healing about that process, something healing about it. For me, the church too often is the musicals. We clap and we sing and we, and it's not often enough the singer-songwriter. I believe we need church liturgy, church structure, sermons, all of that, that reflect and open us up to our brokenness, that help to sensitize us to the people to our right and to our left, that help open us up to our darkness and our brokenness and our suffering, not so that we dwell within it, but so that in the midst of that, we find healing. And we'll stop there. Okay, um, thank you. Uh, yep. oh, thank you. <laughs> Well, I'm, I'm disappointed. I'm sorry. I thought you'd have something to say. Yeah. But, <laughs> we've heard all that before. I know. Yeah. Anyway, um, we thought we'd take a little while. Um, Nate's around someone with a microphone. So if you'd like uh, to ask something, uh, make a comment. Uh, and remember, there are other people in the room. So. Um, uh, right behind you, Nate. Yeah, I'll, I'll move back. Hello. Yeah, wait till the mic comes on, and then we'll. And then we're going to do the revival bit, and we're going to yeah. ask people to come forward. You know. Hello. Do you hear me? Uh, no. No. Oh, yes, maybe yes, now. Yes. Yes. No. Yes. You hear me now? Okay. Here's a question. <laughs> um, for the future because I have children. <laughs> so my question is, okay, what you're saying makes sense when you've been through the trauma of crucifixion. How do you bring up a generation? Does the new generation need to experience the trauma of crucifixion to get to the resurrection? Can you bypass it? I, my, my thoughts on that is, yeah, no, you can't. That actually, there's something fundamental. And this is why, I'm, I, this is why I've got a problem with the new atheists, is, is that they just don't go far enough. Um, if you, want to become, if you want to be an atheist, join the church, right? That's the message. If you want to be an atheist, become a Christian, right? That's true atheism. That's existential atheism. That's where you feel the breakdown of the idols. Now, whenever someone says, I've lost God, but they haven't experienced any kind of trauma, they're still sitting around and kind of chatting, and I worry because, in a sense, there's something fundamentally traumatic about breaking out of this this matrix of, of separation and alienation. There's something fundamentally problematic about it. And what we often do as humans, we protect ourselves from it at all costs. And so if, if you may not be God, but then we bring in other things to become God. You know, the throne stays. We just put different things in the throne. For me, the throne has to, has to die. So there is, I think, in Christianity, a theology of the cross is a sense for me would say, yeah, there's something inherently traumatic that we have to go through. But my thing is this, you don't have to bring people into your trauma. The trauma is already happening. That's the issue. You know, so, and that's, what, that's the idea that there's traumas that happen to you, abuse and things like that, and, and that's terrible. But even if nothing traumatic has happened to you, life itself is a trauma. You, you're going to die. Um, you, life, you've, you experience life as meaningless. 
and you experience uh, yourself as falling short. Tillich talked about three things. You know, there's there's a sense of um, death, anxiety of death, and it comes up in two forms. The sense of you know, if, if a car nearly hits you, it's like whoa, well that was really bad. I nearly died there, right? So that's the kind of weak form. The strong form is, I'm going to die, right? That's the strong form. The weak form of meaninglessness is. My job is not giving me satisfaction. I need to get another job. That's the weak form. The strong form is whatever job I take, it's going to be meaningless. And the third is, um, you know, a kind of guilt of you walk past somebody and you maybe don't give them money or something, and you feel, oh, you know, I think I let myself down. I, I, didn't, I didn't live up to something in me. That's kind of guilt. And the strong form is condemnation, which is by my very being, I am somehow falling short. I have this something in me that inherently is falling short. So the, the issue is, it's not that we have to invite people into the trauma. The trauma already is happening. And what we have to do is help in liturgical ways reflect that trauma back in a way that will not put the person into a suicidal place and help them find healing in the midst of it. And I think you also don't have to put people through the trauma of bad religion. Yes. No. That just adds another one. Yeah. 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 Oh, go ahead. Oh, and, and, and just on that, and one sec, sorry. I mean, Karl Marx in the um, you know, uh, critique of Hegel's philosophy of right says, you know, starts it off by saying, uh, the, the critique of religion is the beginning of all critique. Um, now, what, I, what he meant, well, this is how I read that, is that, that religion is the, the, the purified form of the problem. So, and, and the people think that BMW will save us, or the car, or this woman, or whatever. So that's, that's happening everywhere. But if you want to see it in this purified form, religion has it. You know, God and da 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 da. Religion's purified form is, is the problem. <laughs> um, now, this is why I think Bonhoeffer is so vital, especially latter Bonhoeffer. Religion as Christianity is, is the answer. Mm -hmm. But religion is, is actually the, be the biggest culprit, because it is the problem writ large. Yeah. yeah. Anyway, sorry. Go ahead, mate. Hi, uh, my name is Barbot. Thank you so much for being here, and thank you for the insight. It's been a pleasure. Um, my question is not so much a challenge to anything you said, even though it might sound like one. It's more of kind of like a exploratory question, a speculative question. So it sounds to me like a major thread of what you're talking about, major existential thrust of it is sort of this idea of detaching yourself from desire, from the, the quote-unquote pursuit of happiness, uh, whatever that may be. And I'm wondering if, um, if we took the quote-unquote Christian language out of what you've been presenting tonight and replaced it with, for example, some Eastern religion such as the Four Noble Truths of Buddhism and detaching yourself from suffering, detaching yourself from desire. In as much as saying that, I realize you're not here with an apologetic mission, but what would you say Christianity has uh, that those pursuits don't have, yeah. even though they claim to, they might claim to have the same philosophy in terms yes. of detaching yourself from the desire. I'm tempted to and of course, because it's great question. Acknowledging that you're not, <laughs> <laughs> acknowledging you're not an apologetic. I just want to yeah. kind of explore that with you. Oh so. yeah, no, I'm glad you because I'm getting that a lot. In fact, I've got quite a few people here coming from a Buddhist position. I've quite a few people from an atheist position actually here accepting this Christology, but from a Buddhist position, they're going, yes, I really like this. Like, but here's the difference. Here's where I would want to engage in a, in a dialogue with, with, with someone from Buddhist tradition, is that I think actually this theology of the cross is quite similar to the Buddhist analysis of the problem, which is, in a sense, desire is actually the problem. We think it's the solution, but desire causes these conflicts. And the, the answer is to experience the loss of desire. Now, up to the cross, I'm kind of, I think there's a similarity on the problem. 
I actually think the resurrection offers a different solution, right? And this is what I would say tentatively, as a tentative suggestion, is that let's take the wisdom tradition. The wisdom tradition is the tradition that basically ultimately says life is meaningless, life is nihil, nothing. Um, and that's generally, uh, you know, what you come to in philosophy. You kind of like ultimately life is life is meaningless. So that's the wisdom tradition. And if you can just, in one sense, live into that, nihil unbind. You live it. You live into the the big bang and the cool death, and you just accept it, and you somehow whatever. I think this is why Christianity has always been profoundly anti-wisdom. I said to a friend one time, I said, you're very wise, and he took it really, really well. And a half an hour later, I said, I hate wisdom. And he's like, oh, so I thought you were, I, I thought you were paying me a compliment, <laughs> but you were really slagging me off when you said I was wise. <laughs> but that's pretty, yeah, I was, you know. Because um, I, I think Christianity is anti-wisdom because uh, what it says is it refuses to accept that. Now, it's anti-wisdom in the same way as someone is anti-Christ. Anti-Christ is not like, I, dis I don't believe intellectually in Christ, right? Anti-Christ is somehow living bodily against, you know, the thoughts or whatever of Christ. And when I'm talking about anti-wisdom, I'm not talking about intellectually disagreeing with the wisdom tradition. I'm talking about a protest against it. And love for me is a protest against wisdom. It is the refusal to engage with life as meaningless. It is, the, it is a pathological engagement with the world. It is an embrace of life as the sublime, as beautiful, as meaningful, as existing, right? So if the wisdom tradition says, well, ultimately nothing exists, everything is just nothingness waiting to happen, and, and, and is not sublime and is not beautiful, love, in a sense, is a pathological engagement with, with, with the world. And the difference is this, the drive, and I wish I had a board to write on, like Rob Bell had this massive board. <laughs> <laughs> is, uh, is, is, um, the idol is that drive for something we do not have, something we do not have that we want, we want, we want, right? Love is a pathological drive for what we do have. It is the TARDIS and Doctor Who. It's like, you know, it, it's a small box with four walls, <laughs> um, but inside it goes on forever. This is what the Doctor uses to you know, travel through time and space. Whenever you love someone, their fragile fleshly frame is experienced as a doorway into an infinite universe, right? So the, the, the love is a pathological drive experiencing the mystery that exists within existence itself. It's an embrace of that mystery, which is, and so the difference between the drive, the death drive with sin and idolatry and love is that the death drive is always pushing you to something you do not have. Love is embracing what we do have, but embracing what we do have in its otherness. And that's what I think is different about Christianity. Um, I think, there's another component. I think the other component is that you are speaking about Christianity. Mm -hmm. And it seems to me that, that one of the, the challenges in, in, in the world today, uh, where everything's globalized and, and collapsed, is that essentially the, the, the root of your story is not a universal story. It's a Christian story coming from enlightenment thinking. Hold on. <laughs> Hold on, don't get in the yet. Yeah, yeah. In, in the sense that yeah. the, the Buddhist story doesn't operate in the same understanding of this grid. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. So, but what we do is we, 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 so we interpret Buddhism. I mean, Zizek talks about this in a sense, that we interpret, you know, westernized Buddhism. You, you, interpret, you, you interpret it in a way that actually is not true to Buddhism. Yeah. Yes, yes, yes. Now yes. tell me what I'm right. 
Okay, yeah, no, I, yeah, okay. Now, I mean, the big, the big issue for me um, is, it's exactly right, of course, this is a narrative, which is historical, political, right? Um, but, I mean, this is where I think the Pauline insight's so good. So he, you know, has six categories, of tr six tribal categories, the political, the religious, and the biological. Uh, Jew, Gentile, slave-free, male, female. Six categories. Um, so the political are obviously slave-free, religious, Jew, Gentile, biological, male, female. And he says in Christ, you know, these, you know, in Christ, you're neither nor. You know, these, these remain and yet somehow uh, lose operative power. And I'd love to talk about that. That's the, that's the stuff, by the way, I didn't talk about, but if I was doing another talk, I would. But the, the issue is, um, for him, these tribal identities uh, are just, and the point is not because we take on a super identity, Christ, the Christian identity, it's we identify radically with the one who lost all identity, one who was crucified, curse of God, put outside the city, outside the cultural, political, religious narratives. And so, naked, crucified naked, not outside the kind of the divine uh, blessing, right? Um, so for Paul, we, by, by losing our identity, we identify directly with the one who has all identity. The problem is now, Christianity is just a tribal identity. So I think Paul would then, of course, include Christianity now. Jew, Gentile, slave, free, male, female, Christian, non-Christian, theist, atheist, whatever. Um, and, and the reason why I say that is, if, yeah, Christianity is a particularistic but it, it's making a universalistic claim. It is a splinter. It sure. is a splinter in ideology. For me, the crucifixion is not an ideology, um, although it, it's, it's dressed in ideological mythological frame. It's, it is the breakdown of all mythology. Mythologies are stories that tell you where the universe started, where we're going, and how we get there. So a mythology is a grand story, right? The thing about the, cru the crucifixion for me is it is the critique of mythology. It is, it is the, the experience of the loss of all grounding narratives. And, and, and so I agree with you, and yet what I'm saying, I suppose what I'm saying is, but that there is a universal claim. I'm a universalist, oh, I agree with you. I'm making I, I, a universal claim. I agree claim. with you. I just said that because I wanted you to say that. Oh, yeah, exactly. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, so I, and this is the Paulinian universal. Yeah, well, I, I think, and that's really what I wanted to get at, is, is that there's a conversation that gets had, which is, well, you sound like a Buddhist. Yes. And it becomes this conversation, and I know that's not what you were saying, so. Yeah, I know you were asking a great question. And yeah. one thing, and I know, and one thing about that as well, just to, to push in, this, this, you know, I was, always, I was very baffled whenever this whole kind of thing about Rob Bell and universalism came out and all that. Um, because, I, you know, in a sense, all Christians are universalists. It, you know, so can, the, the, the traditional conservative universalism is Christianity is for everyone. The Christian message is universal, i.e., it is everyone has to hear it, ends of the earth, and everyone has to make a decision. That's a universalism. The Christian message is for everyone. So that's a universalism. That's Christian universalism, right? And, and the problem with, well, not the problem, but the issue is, whereas you've got particularistic religions like, like Islam and Judaism, because they're particularistic, i.e., you do not have to be a Jew to have a place. You might have a lesser place, but you can have a place. I, 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 the traditional universalism, you have no place. You know, if you, if you, if you reject it, you know, you're, you're damned. But, that's, but then there's the, the more kind of liberal, let's call it liberal universalism, which is not the scope of the message is universal, but also the operative power is universal. Therefore, you know, we all get there in the end. Um, and, uh, but I, you know, I think both of those are, you know, they're just metaphysical abstractions. I think the, the, the Pauline universal is we are the trash of the earth. We are the excrement of the world. You know, the Paul, and why is that the universal? Well, for Paul, he's saying that, that the Christian is the one who experiences the loss of all identity, the loss of their tribal identity, the identification with the one who loses all identity, right? 
So in one sense, the Christian is the one who experiences themselves outside of political, cultural, and religious narratives. This is what Sartre said about the waiter who was carrying the, the coffee in this Parisian, this Parisian kind of cafe. He noticed this waiter was so like a waiter, was acting exactly like a Parisian waiter being stuck up and all of that. Um, and he said, this waiter is being inauthentic because this waiter is fully identifying with their identity, is fully thinking that they are a waiter. But they're not a waiter. They transcend their identity. They leak out of their identity at every moment. But when we identify fully with our narratives, our religious, cultural, and political narratives, we are fully inside, and we're inside our narratives. We don't realize that we actually are like trash. We put it outside, that we are actually outside of our own narratives, that we are a fiction, that our narratives are a fiction. I'd love to talk about that. But the point is, and the point is, the, for me, the Pauline universal is Christians, ex the Christian community is the community that experiences itself as the trash of the earth, as, as the ones who are outside of their tribal identities. Mm -hmm. And that is a universal. It's a universal. Right, I agree. Yeah, in the back. Okay. Um, I think this is the second time I've heard this sermon, uh, so <laughs> it's actually kind of nice to hear it in person. Um, I think that Mike. Do you call it a sermon? I like that. Okay, yeah, a sermon or a conversation or a lecture or whatever you want to no, utilize I it. Sermon's good. Um, I like it. I like okay, sermon. Um, all right. So you're going to have to forgive me for invoking scholasticism, but I have a question about the motivating power of happiness. And, and I'm thinking, like, okay, everything that anybody ever does is because they want to be happy. Even if that's, I'm going to trash the system and worship Christ in a wholly other different way. It's to be fulfilled and to experience more love and have more meaning in life. And I'm, and I'm just kind of, I guess I'm a little confused at your term or if we just give up on happiness and just kind of this, you know, exactly what's going to motivate anybody to do anything anymore. Well, yeah. we're Europeans, we're not happy. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I'm from Ireland, you should see the weather. I, think, yeah. I don't think I'd have this theology if I was born here, honestly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So true. What's that crazy Irish guy talking about? <laughs> what? It's fantastic. You know, it's always sunny, big yeah. beaches. Yeah. So yeah, probably, you know. I'm just unhappy and I want to make everybody else unhappy, okay? That's, that's my rule. Yeah. That makes me happier, obviously happier. But, that's probably true, by the way, but I'm going to give a justification for what I'm doing, which is um, that I think it's a dialectic move. And the dialectic move is, is um, so there's happiness we can be fulfilled right, on one side, and then the opposite of that generates this opposite, which is, you know, you can't be happy, you can't be fulfilled. The dialectical move, then, is, is in a sense where you fully embrace the second move, um, but you negate it, you negate the negation, you kind, of, um, you kind of get to the point where you go, in embracing that we cannot be happy. In embracing that we cannot be fulfilled, the bizarre thing is we experience happiness and fulfillment. Now, that sounds weird, but in a way, you take a comedian, a stand-up comedian, who's able to talk about their experiences and the things that have happened to them. The very point that they're able to talk about it and make jokes about it and bring it to the surface, bring it into discourse, that's not when it's most oppressive. That's when it loses its oppressive force. It's like the saying, you know, those who do not know theory are not free from it, but the most oppressed by it. In the same way, those who do not know their suffering are not free from it. They're actually most enslaved by it. And in other words, your suffering will come out. It will come out in overeating. It will come out in self-hatred. It will come out in self-harm. It will come out in, it'll come out, but it won't, but, and, and until you kind of, in one sense, bring it to the light, it will be an oppressive force that oppresses you without you even knowing it. So, in one sense, I am actually, you know, I, you know, I don't care about people. That's terrible, that's terrible. But maybe a little bit of me does. Because what I want to say to people is the very embrace of, of our brokenness 
is actually the trick is, that's how you find happiness. The loss, the, the, you lose your life in order to find it. You know, that, that is the dialectic move. As soon as you can be the stand-up comedian and bring your suffering to the surface and speak it, and let it, and let it triangulate, I let other people bear witness to it. And there's one story very quickly I'll share. I, I really like this story. A woman whose child dies a few days after her birth. And so she wraps the child's body in linen. She's so upset and wraps that body to her room. And she goes in search of someone, anyone who can heal that child. And no one can help, witch doctors and faith healers, no one can help. But then somebody in the village says, well, you know, high up in the mountains, away from everybody, there's supposedly a holy man who's so close to God, can he even raise the dead? Maybe it's a myth, but go and search. So she goes and search, she finally finds a little hut by this crystal clear lake, and she knocks on the door, and an old man comes out, she bursts into tears. I don't know if you're the one that I'm looking for. I don't know if you're this holy man, but my child has died, and I need her back. And the holy man takes pity and says, yes, I am the one you seek, and I can help. But first, you must go back into the towns and the cities. You must go through the homes and find a house that has not been touched by suffering and despair and death, and then bring me back a handful of mustard seeds from that home, and I will concoct a potion that will resuscitate your child. And so she goes back, and she goes from house to house, and of course, she can't find anywhere that hasn't been touched by death and suffering and sadness. But as she hears the story of other people's suffering, she gradually comes to terms with her own until she is able to bury her child in the earth. I'm afraid I'm going to be continuing the theme of Buddhism here. Because mm -hmm. yeah. uh, that, that was really one of the biggest themes that I seem to have heard was, you know, Buddhism is, suffering is universal. And this, this universal suffering is caused by desire. Therefore, flee desire. So we, I, you know, Christianity has some things in common there. Suffering certainly is universal, and evil desire is, is, is troubling. When I first came to this seminary as a teenager, uh, Dr. Mao and John Piper were debating. Dr. Mao had written a book, The God Who Commands, and so Dr. Mao was talking about we should serve God out of duty, and, you know, a lot of us, I would imagine, know Piper's book, Desiring God. We should serve God out of joy or out of pleasure. And... Dr. Mao conceded in the middle of the debate that Piper was right. It, it made me respect them both a lot more. I, so I'm like this gentleman back here. You know, delight yourself in the Lord, and he'll give you the desires of your heart. You know, in God's presence is fullness of joy. At his right hand are pleasures forever. And this, these are deeply embedded that happiness is a good goal. It, is your point merely that happiness can be a god and an idol and an end in itself and we should avoid that i, I think we would all agree I, I guess i was i was i was hearing more in what you were saying i was hearing i was hearing more flee your desires and that is a kind of salvation uh, and, and that's where i was getting a little bit i was sense i was troubled by, yeah. a little bit by that yeah. i mean what i'm actually saying i need to be precise in this i'm actually not saying I mean, because I, I knew it, I used the word happiness, but actually I'm talking about death drive. I'm talking about the drive, you know, the zombie drive. That's what I'm talking about, which is, which is actually the drive beyond happiness. Um, that's the, my, my point is, in a sense, humans, animals are the utilitarians. That's my point. Human, humans or animals are the utilitarians. Human beings are, have, a, have a problem 
with actually embracing happiness, utilitarian value, and it's it's the beyond the pleasure principle. It's because we are infused with the, with the drive, the drive that actually acts helps us act in a selfish, a selfless way. That if we were more selfish, we would embrace happiness. So in a sense, what I'm saying is, is technically it's this: it's that the, this death drive that we pursue this thing that will make us complete and make us fulfilled and make us happy. We think that that's uh, you know that's what will make us happy, but that's actually what prevents us from experiencing happiness. But if we lay down the pursuit of the drive, of the idol of happiness, we lay that down, we actually find that that's how we access happiness. So it's, it's, it's about saying precisely this, is that the, the death drive, the zombie drive that I'm talking about, is the very drive that prevents us from being able to be happy. And the very laying down of that, which involves laying down the pursuit of happiness, in a sense, because that's how we, we mistakenly believe that the idol will make us happy. In laying that down and simply trying to sensitize ourselves to one another, there, there is how we find a form of indirect happiness. So that, that's, the, that's the logic. If you, if you know, just, to, just to clarify that, because you know, I probably didn't make that clear enough. That's, that's the kind of uh, logical system that's at work. And also the difference between Buddhism and, and Christianity here is that you know when I talk about you know Christ, Christ, you know Christ not believing in God, God not believing in God, that Christological system of the ideology stopping the believing in itself, I think that's quite unique to Christianity. Um, now I'm not saying that th these these narratives can't be found elsewhere, etc., etc. But um, funnily enough, I do think that that that, that logic, that structure, is. Um, is, is unique to Christianity. It's quite, it's quite, a, it's quite a strong claim. I'm almost scared mm. to say it, but actually, mm. I'm, yeah, let me ask what I believe. I'm sure a lot of people want to attack me for that, <laughs> for, 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 for holding Christianity up so high. But, you know. Although, I, I think I also want to say that um, the real question, the, the real issue for me is not whether or not you might be apparently evoking some uh, Buddhist tenet. Yeah. But actually, what you're saying about Christianity? Yes. Oh, yeah. I mean, this is this is totally <laughs> I mean, that's, that's, the, that's the issue. Yeah. yeah. The funny thing is, I've never studied Buddhism at all, and it's, but I'm kind of really interested in kind of. But I came to this purely through my reading of the Christian theology. That's a bizarre thing. I mean, that's not a lie. I've never read. I've never read Suzuki or a Buddhist in my life. You know. So, but I'm fascinated. So that's why I want to get into some dialogue with Buddhism because I'm like, my goodness, this is a theology of the cross I'm doing. But I keep getting people, really smart people, saying. Yeah, I think there's a Buddhist kind of thing, and I'm going, okay, we need to explore that. Mm. But, but ultimately, yeah, the funny thing is, this is a very deeply Christological, and that's just how I came to it. Yeah. Not I came to it, so I stole from everybody else. Yeah. But, um, we got, uh, actually, we have time for one more question. One more okay, one more question. And then, uh, yeah, we'll wrap, have to wrap okay. it up. Um, well, here's, uh, I have two thoughts that I was hoping you could comment on. Uh, one is that it seems to me that the model of existence that you've created where we reject the idol and move towards love, which is the light, one could adopt that model of existence without necessarily the Christianity. And I think that's why people are asking the questions about Buddhism, because I think that one could adopt that model without any particular religious view be Buddhist or Christian or Muslim or any religious view. That's one comment. And I have a related thought, which is, what's the, what is it that this love means in the way you use it? Uh, 
I know your example, you see certain people, the conductor is a good example, you he felt that he had been seen. Yeah. But how does that translate into our practical everyday life where just by our very existence, we come into contact with so many people that we don't really see. And sometimes, even the people who are closest to us, we don't see them and they don't see us. Yes. And that's hard to overcome. Uh, yeah, well, I definitely can comment on the first bit. The second bit, I think, that's, you know, that's, that's, a, that's, a, that's a, a challenge, but you know, um, how, does, how do we do it? I don't know if I can say much about that. But definitely the first one I, bit I wanna say is, is I, I think this, what I, I mean, this is my claim, that this is Christianity. It's not, it's, Christianity isn't, you know, what you believe. You know, I th in, the, in the whole debate of religious or spiritual, I'm none of the above. For me, Christianity is materialist. I, it transforms your material reality. It's a form of life. It's not, a, it's not an epistemological set of beliefs. It's not, it's not a metaphysic. You know, I, I think Cornelius Mantell and Francis Schaeffer influenced American Christianity. You know, you have these worldview books. You know, Buddhism, or you know, Buddhism, Marxism, da, 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 Christianity, and, and Christianity is placed alongside other worldviews as a worldview alongside other worldviews. That's you know, I, as as a, as a theological materialist, I'm like I'm not I'm saying Christianity is actually a splinter in worldviews. Um, so yes, in a sense, I call my collective is 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 connect, you know, theists and atheists and all are are, are embracing this Christology, mostly theists by the way, seventy percent theists, but um. Uh, uh, you know, if you ask somebody, it's like, uh, you know, if you ask somebody, why do you come to ICON, and they go, you don't, if you don't believe in God, I say, well, because God spoke to me. I mean, why else would I be here? You don't believe in God, yes, but God spoke in a sense of, this is an embodied reality. Um, so it's not that I think, I don't, I think anywhere this happens is Christianity. That's my point is, but, but, because Christianity wasn't a tribal identity. I don't think, I think it was a form of life, which now is a tribal identity. But I want to make the claim that, that, that behind it, you know, so my problem is people are always wanting to return to the early church, the church before Constantine, before power, the church before Neoplatonism, you know, the church before um, uh, Paul, even, right? The, church, the early church, so we always got this idea that, that, that my problem is these just don't go back far enough. But the point is to go back to the event that gave birth to the early church. That's the true move. That's the Kierkegaardian move. Is that you know? It's not that we're distant from that event in terms of time, but close in our understanding. We are far in terms of our understanding, but close in terms of time. That event is breeding now. So you have an, in, in, in traditional ontology, you have potentiality and actuality, right? Potentials become actual. It can become actual. So I, a potential is a Christmas cake, right? Christmas cake. There's no such thing as it. Christmas cake, there is. Yeah. Yeah, Christmas cake. Um, <laughs> it just sounded weird for a second. Because I wanted Christmas pudding. Christmas pudding, that's what I should have said. Because I was going to say birthday cake. Christmas pudding. A Christmas pudding is not made as a potentiality, but then if I make it, it's an actuality. So traditionally in Aristotle and all, uh, actuality is a potentiality that's happened. So actuality is potentiality exhausted, in a sense of a potentiality is exhausted in actuality, okay? Now, but that's, that, I don't, that, no, um, something like Shizek or whatever would say, no. Actuality is infused with potentiality. So the, the, the church, the actuality of the church is infused with a potentiality. So it's not about moving beyond the church, it's about reconnecting with the, poten with the potentiality that is bubbling and lurking inside the actuality. Actu so the event of Christianity is the potentiality that is, that is permanently erupting into the actuality of the historically existing church. That's the event that we want to keep birthing and making new. And, and, and when we do that, I just call that Christianity. That's Christianity. Everything yeah. else is just tribal. No, I was thinking of, what's the word for like, uh, 
stuff around the side. Decoration. decoration. Everything else is just decoration. Icing. Icing. That's the word I was looking for. Yeah. Well, with that, um, every head bowed, every eye closed. Is there a hand? Is there a hand? Just reach in your what pocket. Just bring reach out in your wallet. Yes, that's right. Yeah. Just pass the money to the front. That private jet's not going to buy itself. I uh, know. No, no, no. no, no. <laughs> that desire's not going to go away without yeah, exactly. cash. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and, 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 and by the way, I hope you disagree with me, because if you agree with me, you're going to have to do something about this. You know, that's right. and that's terrible, and you're probably going to get fired from your jobs or not get jobs. It's going to be awful. You're going to have to create <laughs> churches where there's more like singer-songwriters and reflect your darkness and all that. It's going to be terrible, but you have to do it. You know, now you can't deny that you heard this. If you disagree, fantastic. I hope you, I hope you do. I hope no one agrees with me. If you agree with me, you're stuffed. But if we don't do it, no one does it. It doesn't get done. We have to do it. We have to be the dissidents. Otherwise, it's not going to happen. That's right. Man. Anyway. Anyway, thank you for being here. Um, there are books in the back. I think, is there other, are there like cookies back there or something? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, there are people here. After that, we oh. are the dissidents. There's cookies. Exactly. That's why I've said it. That's why I've said it. There's tea and biscuits. <laughs> that, that was that's how the English ruled the world, mate. Yeah, tea right. and biscuits. That's how you rule the world. Yeah. Anyway, <laughs> thanks, thanks. let's thank Pete for being here tonight. <laughs>